The text for this morning's message is found in John chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Father, as we turn our heart to your word for this morning, we pray that you would help us. I pray, Father, that as the wind blows, that the Spirit would blow in our midst today. Sometimes the Spirit blows in a gentle breeze, and sometimes it blows in a rushing wind, but we leave the details up to you, Father. We only pray that you would come now and stir among us. We pray that you would make your word live among us. We pray that you would apply it to each of our lives. We pray that you would make it have power in our lives, Father. We pray that you would guide us in the way that we should go, and we thank you by faith for what you'll do through this faith-filled Word in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, tells us the story of a man who, in some ways, is different than us and in some ways is quite similar to us. His name was Nicodemus. He was a, a ruler of the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee and a member of what was called in those days the Sanhedrin. As you may know, the Pharisees were a conservative group of Jewish leaders who strived to be faithful to the covenant that God had made with his people, and they strived to be obedient, strictly obedient to the law that God had given to his people. And while their motives and even some of their practices are commendable and even laudable at points, the truth of the matter is that they tended to be so focused on the detail of their obedience to the things of God that they lost sight of the God of all things. It is an odd reality. But sometimes people become so committed to the things of God that they forget God. Sometimes people master the details of religion and therefore think that they have mastered God. They think that they're in control of God when in fact they have walked away from God. And it's such an odd thing because while they're walking away from God, they're speaking the name of God. They're speaking of the things of God. And it wasn't true of every Pharisee, but in general, I think this was the pattern of the Pharisees. Evidently, Nicodemus was a leader among the Pharisees because he also served as a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court system. And so in pretty much every town in the nation of Israel, there would be a Sanhedrin. There would be a court of law. 
And then since Jerusalem was the most prominent city in the land and since Jerusalem was the home to the great temple of God, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem essentially functioned as the supreme court of the nation. It was comprised of up to 71 leaders and for the most part, Rome was happy to allow them to govern the affairs of the country. The Sanhedrin were made up of two parties, The Sadducees, who had primary authority over the temple complex and all that was surrounding it. And then there were the Pharisees, who had primary control over the synagogues that were scattered throughout the land. The Sadducees were essentially a political party. It's something very important to understand about them. They love to use religious language. They love to wear the long flowing robes. They love to be put in the places of honor in the marketplaces. But in truth, they were essentially a political party who had strong connections with Rome that went way back, centuries back actually, not only with Rome but with other powers that controlled that piece of land. But at this time they had strong connections with Rome and their job in their minds was to guard the status quo so that they could guard their power and their privileges. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were essentially a religious party whose primary concern was to be faithful to the covenant of the Lord and the law of the Lord, and who, therefore, were working toward the day when they would put off the yoke of Rome. They wanted, like in the days of old, for Israel to be self-governing. They wanted to come out from under the yoke of Rome, and they wanted to do that by being faithful to the covenant of God and by being faithful to the law of God. Now, because of the differences between these two parties, they likely had different reactions to Jesus' actions in the temple on the day of the Passover. You may remember from last week that a week or so after Jesus began his public ministry, he traveled with his disciples down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. When he walked into the outer court of the temple of God, the place where the Gentiles were supposed to pray and worship God, what he saw there instead was a marketplace designed to make money for the religious powers that be. Jesus was outraged by this. He was rightly outraged by this. And he took certain actions to do whatever he had to do to drive those religious merchants and those religious money changers out of the house of God. After he had finished doing so, a group of Jewish leaders sought him out and they questioned him. And surely that group of leaders was from the Sanhedrin. These were some of the greatest rulers in the land of Israel. And we don't have any evidence of this, but it's likely that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had different reactions to this situation. It's likely that the Sadducees were incensed at what Jesus had done because he was disturbing their money-making operation. And it's likely that the Pharisees, on the other hand, despised what the temple had become and that they wanted to change the situation because they were strict observers of the law and the law was clear. Do not make the temple of God a marketplace. But the Sadducees had power, and I mean power, over the temple and all that happened there. And the Pharisees probably felt impotent to do much about it. In John 2.23, We're told that many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem at that time, and evidently some of those who believed were among the Jewish leaders. We don't know how much time passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, but not long after Jesus cleansed the temple, a ruling Pharisee named Nicodemus came to him by night, probably because he feared some of his colleagues. But whatever the case, why ever Nicodemus chose to come to him under the cover of night, 
It is striking to me that Nicodemus came by night to meet with him who is the light, and his life would never be the same. In some ways, Nicodemus is very different than us. He was a Jew. He was highly educated. He was a member of a leading religious party whose aim it was to strictly observe the law of God and to do the will of God. He was a leader among his people who held a, a very high position. Indeed, he was one of no more than 71 people who had political and religious power over millions of people. He was a very high man, beloved. And in these ways, we're not very much like Nicodemus. But on the other hand, Nicodemus is quite a bit like us. And by us, I mean religious people. Nicodemus was born into a Jewish family who did worship the one and only true God. He was not raised to worship a false God. He was worshiping the true God. Nicodemus was raised to believe the word of God from the time he was very young, and it was the true word of God indeed. It's the word of God from which we still preach today. At our church, over the years, we've worked from Genesis to the end of 2 Samuel, and I promise you, Nicodemus would have known those books backward and forward. He would have been able to quote large swaths, maybe entire books of it by memory. He knew the Word of God. When he became older, he was trained to know the Word deeply and to teach the Word of God to the people of Israel and to apply it to the details of their lives. He was committed to the beliefs and to the practices of his people, and he thought that he was right with God because of these things. He thought that he would be with God forever because of these things. He thought that his ethnic heritage and his religious practices were enough to preserve and prosper the fellowship that he thought he had with God and to do so forever. If someone was to come to this church and interview each of us today, those of us with religious backgrounds would probably deny that we're trusting in our religious heritage and in our practices for our salvation. But the truth of the matter is that America is filled with people who think that their good works are enough to make them right with God. Many people will check the box and say that there are Christians. Many people outwardly even appear to be Christians. They engage in practices that Christians engage in, but inwardly they are looking to themselves for salvation. Just yesterday, I heard a Christian man say, he said, yeah, I've done some bad things in my life, but the good things I've done have outweighed the bad things. And he didn't draw the conclusion, but it was obvious what he was saying. He felt that because his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds, he was going to be right with God. Beloved, that's very bad thinking, and it's much more widespread than we might imagine. It's also very close to the Pharisee's way of thinking. And so we would do well to listen well to what Jesus had to say to Nicodemus because perhaps in speaking to Nicodemus, he's also speaking to us. Perhaps in speaking to Nicodemus, he's addressing some of the fundamental issues that face religious people when it comes to matters of faith and of salvation. We don't know where the meeting place was, but Nicodemus probably went to where Jesus and his disciples were staying for the night. And once there, he found Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Please notice that Nicodemus is showing him great respect. Jesus was a young man. He was probably around 30 years old. Nicodemus was likely an old man. Jesus was uneducated in a formal sense. Nicodemus was highly educated. It is striking 
that Nicodemus comes to him and immediately shows honor to him. Rabbi, he calls him. We know that you are a teacher sent from God. And then also notice that he uses the word we rather than the word I. He doesn't say, I know that you're a teacher sent from God. He says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. This probably means that some of his colleagues were also impressed with Jesus, and they at the very least were curious about who he was and why he was doing what he was doing. I'm not saying that a whole pack of them came to faith in Christ on that one day when he cleansed the temple, but I am saying that I think there were a number of Pharisees in particular that looked at what Jesus did and heard what Jesus said and knew in their hearts that God was with him and they were at the very least curious and wanting to investigate who he was. And so probably they sent Nicodemus as a representative to talk to Jesus. Rather than returning a greeting of his own, it touches me that Jesus just looked at Nicodemus probably right in the eyes and got to the point. He said, truly, truly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now those words, truly, truly, they come right out of Hebrew, and it's literally amen, amen, which means so be it, so be it. It's a way of confirming what you've said before you've even said it. It's a way of showing deep passion. It's a way of showing deep conviction. It's a way of saying, I mean with all my heart, I mean what I am about to say, and oh, did Jesus want Nicodemus to hear what he had to say. The term born again is well known to us. If, the, if you're old enough, you remember in the 70s and the 80s, a little bit in the early 90s, this term became super popular and everybody was going around saying they were born again Christians. Well, everybody's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you heard this term all over the place, right? And it really, I think, began to become so popular because of President Jimmy Carter who insisted that he was a born-again Christian. We, we've heard this term. Even if you're a, not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've heard the term to be born again. However, the Greek word here for again usually means from above, and it sometimes can mean again. And so Jesus more literally said to him, amen, amen, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Linguistic issues aside, why do you suppose that Jesus began like this? Why do you suppose that Jesus said this to Nicodemus? If you look at Nicodemus's greeting and then look at what Jesus said, it's a little perplexing as to why he went in that direction. It doesn't seem to have a, a lot to do with what Nicodemus had just said to him. And yet when we look a little bit closer, I think that we see a pattern and I think that what we see is that Jesus is picking up on Nicodemus' words and taking the conversation to a much deeper level so that he can speak into this religious man's life. I put the pattern up on the PowerPoint for you, so if you'll look there. Nicodemus said, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. No one unless. Jesus replied, well, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is picking up on the pattern of what Nicodemus said and responding to him. Jesus is essentially saying, Nicodemus, you want to talk about signs? I want to talk about salvation. You Pharisees think that you're going to be saved by virtue of your ethnic heritage and by your faithful religious practices. But I earnestly say to you, Nicodemus, that no one will see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born from above. Your works before God will not be sufficient to make you right with God. You cannot do for yourself something that only God can do for you. 
To help us understand how Nicodemus probably heard Jesus' statement, let me read for you a quote from a Bible commentator named Colin Cruz because I think he just gives us an insight into how the Jews at that time thought. Colin writes, Jesus' Pharisaic contemporaries believed that all Jews would enter the kingdom of God through resurrection on the last day. Please hear that. The Pharisees believed that every Jew was going to be with God forever through the resurrection on the last day. The only exceptions being those who denied the faith and committed acts of apostasy. To be born a Jew was to be an inheritor of the kingdom of God, period. Nicodemus would have been astounded by Jesus' statement that he as a Jew would not see the kingdom of God unless he were born from above. It's no wonder then, beloved, that Nicodemus took Jesus' words in a literal and physical sense and asked these two questions of him. He said in verse four, how can a man be born when he is old, Jesus? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him again with passion and said in verse five, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, Nicodemus, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus, again, used this formula of unless cannot. And he basically repeated himself in slightly different words. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Over the centuries, there's been a lot of debate about what this phrase means, born of water and of spirit. Some think that it refers to natural birth and physical birth so that to be born of water means to come through the mother's ambiotic fluid and to be born of the Spirit means to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Other people think that it means baptism and then the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So some say, well, he was referring to John's baptism and then to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Or others say, no, he was referring to Christian baptism and then to the giving of the Holy Spirit. But Several hundred years ago, John Calvin suggested a third option that has really become the the prevailing opinion ever since. Specifically, Calvin pointed out that in the Gospel of John, water is often a symbol for what? It's a symbol for the Holy Spirit, right? Almost every time you see the word water in John, it's a symbol for the Spirit. Specifically, Calvin showed uh, many texts where these things were put together, and then he made an analogy to Matthew and Luke where it said that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he pointed out that when it says Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, these are not two things, but one thing. It's not as though Jesus is gonna give you the Holy Spirit and then Jesus is gonna take a match and light you on fire, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is going to baptize you with the fire that is the Holy Spirit. And Calvin said that this is similar. What Jesus is saying is that you will be born of the water that is the Holy Spirit. These are the same things but said in a different way. You must be regenerated. You must be born from above by the Spirit of God or you will never enter into the kingdom of God. If you're not physically born, how can you enter into your parents' house? And if you're not spiritually born, how can you enter into God's house? Whatever Nicodemus understood this to mean, I hope we can see that Jesus is doubling down here with him. He was restating his point with conviction and passion. He was refusing to address Nicodemus' confusion directly, and he just kept pushing the point, you must be born from above, sir. You cannot trust in your religious 
heritage and practices and position in order to be saved. You must be born from above. And so Jesus continues in verses six through eight. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Natural birth is not equal to spiritual birth. You cannot be born a Jew and think that therefore you are born into the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again or be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I want to quickly point out to you that where it says you all must be born again, if you look in your Bibles there, some of your Bibles will have a note there that says that he is now speaking in the plural. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying you all must be born again. And I think the reason Jesus is saying this in the plural, you all must be born again, is because Nicodemus is there as a representative of the Pharisees. He's a, there as a representative of religious people. He's there as a representative of people who are close to God and yet so far from God. And though we differ from them in the details, I wonder if we're really all that different from them. You all, you religious people, you people who take the name of God on your lips and do the things that you think God requires, you all must be born again. You may have heard that the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same in Greek and in Hebrew. Numa is the Greek word. Ruach is the Hebrew word. They both mean spirit. They both mean wind. And so Jesus is making a play on words here. He's using physical wind to make a point about the spirit and about spiritual birth. He's saying that the wind is real and we know it's real. Why? Because we can hear its sound. And of course, we can feel it upon our skin. And of course, we can see its effects on trees and on people and on all manner of things. We know that the wind is there, even though we can't see it. However, the wind is mysterious to us. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. Even in our scientific age, these things can't be completely explained. We can explain the dynamics of how hot and cold air work with one another, but we cannot explain all the details of why the wind comes up on this day and not on that day. It's a mystery to us. The thing is, though, that it's not a mystery to God. God knows the origin of the wind. God knows the destination of the wind. God knows the purposes of wind. It is unseen, but God is in total control of the wind. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is difficult for us to discern and to explain why one person is born from above and another is not. It's difficult for us to discern and to explain the details of the destiny of those who are so born. The reality and the process of being born from above is essentially a mystery to us, beloved. However, it is not a mystery to God. He knows all who have been born again. He knows all who were so born. He knows why they were born this way. He knows how they were born this way. He knows their eternal destiny in all of its particulars. He is in total control of something that is real and unseen. He is in absolute control of the salvation of human souls. And I hope you can hear what he's saying to Nicodemus. You Jews think that you're in control of these things. You think that by your religious understanding and practice, you have mastered God and the things of God, and you have not. 
You are not in control of God. You are not in control of the things of God. You are in the place of a child. You are in the place of mystery. God alone is in control. This reminds me so much of what John said in chapter one, verses 12 through 13, if you wanna look there real quick. Chapter one, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And how did that happen? Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, which more literally means a father, but of God. They were born of God. Nicodemus, Pharisee of the Pharisees, God is in control of all things and you are not in control of God. As passionate and as devoted as you and your kind are, You must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and allow him to do in your heart what you could never do for yourselves. If you are to be born from above, the Lord himself will have to do it. Now, Nicodemus was not helped by this conversation. He was more confused. He was bewildered. And I take that just because he he just sort of threw his hands up and said, how can these things be? How can this be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now, beloved, that may seem like a a rude way to answer Nicodemus, but it was a justifiable and a loving thing for Jesus to say. It was a, a rebuke, but it was a rightful rebuke. Remember who Nicodemus was. He was a leading Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court. He was charged with knowing the word of God so well that he could apply it to the lives of millions of people in his country. He should have known from the calling of Abraham and from the stories of Isaac and Ishmael, of Sarah and Hagar, of Jacob and Esau, of Ephraim and Manasseh, and of others, that there has always been a distinction between the spirit and the flesh. There has always been a distinction between walking by our wisdom and walking by faith. He should have known these things. He should have known that there has always been two Israels, one who truly looked to God and who followed him, and another section of Israel, the majority of Israel, who named the name of God and yet had very little to nothing to do with God. He should have known these things. He was the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus should have known from the stories of Noah and the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan and the prophetic words of Ezekiel 36 and 37, that God's covenant people must pass through the water in order to come into the true promised land. He should have known this. He should have known that the great flood and the crossing of the sea and so many other things were metaphors for something greater God was doing. If he only had eyes to see the word of God that he had memorized, then he would have seen. If Jesus had been talking to an everyday person off the street, beloved, I don't think, I am certain, he would not have expected that person to know these things. But Nicodemus was not just some guy off the street. He was one of the 71 most powerful religious leaders in the nation of Israel, and he should have known these things. He should have been in agreement with these things. He should not have been confused by Jesus. He should have been celebrating the truth with Jesus. And so the Lord continued in verse 11. He said again, truly, truly, amen, amen, with all my heart, 
Nicodemus, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. When Jesus says we, he's probably referring to John the Baptist and his disciples and himself, and even to God the Father himself, all of whom in their various ways bore testimony to Jesus. All of whom in their various ways and at various times pointed to Jesus and said, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. But then Jesus said, you, and then again here, that word you is plural in the Greek, you all do not receive this testimony. You, the Pharisees, you, the religious leaders, have been privileged to be at the temple of God when God himself walked into it, and you did not believe Therefore, basically, Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, the reason that you're not following me is because your heart is hard. You are lost in your self-righteousness. With this in mind, Jesus continues and says, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, then how will I tell you all, or how will you all believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, I think Jesus is saying something like this, beloved. I think he's saying, the other day, when I cleansed the temple, and I got your attention. I spoke to you about things that had to do with earthly justice and earthly righteousness. These are basic things. You don't turn the house of God into a marketplace. You don't take the name of God and use it to manipulate people to get their money for your own purpose. You don't do this. These are basic earthly things of righteousness and justice. And you did not believe You did not listen to me. You did not bow. You did not join me in the process of cleansing the temple. Why did I even have to cleanse the temple? But I said these things to you and you did not believe. How then, now that I'm speaking to you of heavenly things, now that I'm telling you that you have to be born from above, how in the world will you believe? Is it a surprise to you, Nicodemus, that you can't follow my train of thought? Is it a surprise that you don't understand what I'm saying, Nicodemus? Your inability to follow me is a condition, is an indicator of the condition of your heart. It's not an indicator of the cloudiness of my teaching. It's an indicator of the hardness of your heart. You are lost in your self-righteousness. You could quote the Bible probably from beginning to end or at least whole entire books. And yet you do not know the God about whom you think you know so much. You are lost in your self-righteousness and in your sin. Jesus then concludes by explaining why he has the authority to speak of heavenly things. And along the way, he refers to an Old Testament scripture and powerfully, even if a little bit mysteriously, begins to foreshadow the gospel. Jesus says this. Please look at verses 13 to 15. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that is Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Beloved, who has lived where God lives? Who has seen with the very eyes of God and sees all things as God sees them? Who has done that? Who has heard all things the way that God hears them? And who has responded to all things in the way that God 
alone would respond. Who else on this earth was qualified to speak of heavenly things except for him who descended from heaven, except for him who pitched his tents among us? Jesus had the background and he had the knowledge to speak with authority to a man like Nicodemus and the group he represented. But having done so, he drew Nicodemus' attention to a story that preached the gospel of Christ on the world's stage for about 13 centuries by this point, and now for 33 centuries. Specifically, Jesus refers to Numbers chapter 21, verses four through nine. At that time, the people of Israel began to grumble again against the Lord. They were a complaining type of people, weren't they? And again, we're not so much different than they are. They grew impatient with God. They grew impatient with God's leaders. And instead of humbling themselves before the Lord and and before Moses, they began to complain. They began to hurl accusations. And God had had enough by this time. They were almost to the end of their time in the desert, and yet they were still complaining. God had been so gracious to them in so many ways for so long, and yet they were still complaining. And so, because of their entrenched sin, because of their seemingly ceaseless pattern of ungratefulness and grumbling, The Lord allowed fiery or poisonous snakes to rise up among them and bite the people, and many of the people of Israel began to die. You may take offense at that, but Israel did not. When they began to be bitten and die, they realized that God was rebuking them, and so they went to Moses and they said, Moses, please intercede for us. Please call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to take these fiery serpents away. Moses, in humility, Rather than telling them, well, you're just getting what you deserved, in his humility, he did go to God for them, and he did pray. I find it interesting that the Lord did not exactly answer their prayer. The Lord did not take the poisonous snakes away, in other words. What he did was he said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fashion a snake, just like the ones that are biting you. I want you to fashion it out of bronze. I want you to put it up on top of a pole, and I want you to lift it up high so that everybody can see. And then, when those who have been bitten and poisoned, when they look to that bronze serpent, they will be spared. They will be healed. Their lives will be saved. And if anybody else is bit in the meantime, all they have to do is look to the one who has been lifted up, and they will be saved. And this is exactly what happened. Now, that may seem like a strange story to us, beloved, but it was, in fact, a living metaphor of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming through an experience with God's people. When the Son of Man descended from heaven, he lived a perfectly righteous life. He confronted and challenged powerful people with regard to their sin, and some of those people eventually plotted to take his life because of that. He came to call them to repentance, and they put him to death. When their plans succeeded though, they played into the hands of God. Because in that act, Jesus was lifted up on the cross as the guilty one. He was lifted up on the cross as though he deserved to receive the fullness of the wrath of God. Like that bronze serpent in the wilderness, the Lord made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. By looking to him, we might be saved from our sin and the consequences thereof. After Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he overcame death, he walked out of his grave, and he ascended to a very exceedingly high place. Namely, he went to the right hand of the majesty on high. He went and took his seat at the very right hand of God from where he rules and reigns forever as king and high 
priest. And now, beloved, whoever looks to Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. In a sense, God has not removed the serpents from our midst. God has not removed temptation and sin. God has not removed the poison of temptation and sin from our midst. God has not removed from us all the consequences of these things at personal levels and at societal levels. But God has made a way. He has lifted up his son so that whoever looks to him will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, Jesus was greater than we could ever imagine, but he descended from heaven in order to be ascended on the cross and then again back into heaven. He has become the only means of salvation. He has become the way by which a person can be born from above. He has become the way by which a person can be born of water and of spirit. Jesus said these things to Nicodemus in order to confront him and to confront his colleagues. And he said these things to Nicodemus in order to invite him and to invite his colleagues to come out of their self-righteousness and to believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus rebuked this man because Jesus came full of truth. And yes, Jesus invited this man. He offered eternal life to this man because Jesus came full of grace. We don't know how Nicodemus responded to Jesus on that particular night, but we do know that later in, in chapter seven, Nicodemus is gonna stand up for him and speak a good word for him. And we do know that in chapter 19 at the cross after Jesus has died, who's there but Nicodemus? He's there wanting to care for the body. He's outing himself publicly and saying, I, I look up to this man, I care for this man, I wanna help this man. Probably Nicodemus came to know Jesus. We don't know that for sure, but, we, what, but what we do know for sure is this. When Jesus spoke those words to Nicodemus, he was speaking to all of us, especially to religious people. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that truth applies to every human being on this earth, regardless of their position, regardless of their background, regardless of where they've been or where they're going. And yet, since Jesus uttered these words to what I would call a religious unbeliever, I'd like to take just a couple more minutes and to address those here today who might also be in that category. In a church like ours, it's possible that some of us are convinced that we're right with God and that we'll be saved when in fact we are not right with God and we in fact will not be saved. Perhaps some of us are relaxed in our religious heritage and in our religious practices. Perhaps some of us are trusting in a decision that we made a long time ago but haven't really walked out. Or perhaps some of us have in fact walked these things out and we're trusting in our acts of righteousness to save us. Perhaps some of us are saying, well, I was baptized on such and such a date by such and such a church and therefore I will be right with God. If you think that things like these are securing your standing with God and will get you into the kingdom of heaven, beloved, you need to hear the gospel that was preached to Nicodemus. Jesus said that these things are not so. A person must be born from above in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is not playing a sort of a, a spiritual game of hide and seek with us here. He's not trying to make these things more difficult than they need to be. He's just saying, unless you humble yourself before God and surrender your life to God, you cannot be saved. Unless you look to Jesus Christ and understand that he alone paid the price for your sins, 
that he alone fulfilled all righteousness for you, that he alone perfectly obeyed all the rules of God for you. Unless you surrender yourself to that one, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's sort of like the the suit. He's sort of like the skin that you have to wear in order to be admitted into the kingdom. And if you don't come to him, you cannot enter. You must be born from above. You must humble yourself. You must look to him. So I urge you this morning, I implore you this morning, enter the kingdom of God by believing in his most sacred son. Believe in Christ. Look to Christ. Surrender the entirety of your life to Christ. Give it all up to gain Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for rebuking Nicodemus and his type in the temple. I thank you for confronting their fleshly practices there. I thank you for cleansing the place that they had made dirty. And I thank you for loving him enough to confront him one-on-one. I thank you for loving him enough to invite him one-on-one to come and be born from above. You were not simply rebuking him, Lord. You were showing him a path if he would have eyes to see. And I thank you for your love for Nicodemus, Lord. From what we can tell from a couple parts of Scripture, it looks like Nicodemus is our brother in Christ forever and ever. And so we thank you for the massiveness of grace from heaven that saved that soul. And Jesus, I thank you for how this word does speak and needs to speak into the lives of other religious people who think that they'll be saved by their way of life. Oh, Father, please now let your word run speedily. Let your word run with power. Let it have its effect, especially in the lives of religious people who are putting their hope in the wrong things. Lord, you're here today to confront and you're here today to invite. So I pray that indeed someone come to genuine faith in you now. And I trust you for this in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.